are you really going to be a touring classical pianist and play the Beethoven sonatas on the major concert stages for the rest of your life? Is that what you're going to do? Or can you follow a different path? Is there something else available to you that you can, you know, think outside the, the conservatory box? Hello, and welcome to Art Restart where we explore how artists are reinventing their fields and building a new landscape for the arts. I'm Piercarlo Talenti, the producer and editor of this podcast, brought to you by the Keenan Institute for the Arts at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. And I'm Rob Kramer, the founder and CEO of Kramer Leadership, whose mission is to advance leaders for the greater good. This week, we bring you our interview with pianist Sarah Cahill. Sarah Kale is not only a brilliant classical pianist, as a producer, researcher, and a commissioner of new works, she's also an activist, working to ensure that the lesser-known great talents of the classical music world, in particular female and non-white composers, are recognized and celebrated. The New York Times has described her as a sterling pianist and an intrepid illuminator of the classical avant-garde, and Time Out New York called her a brilliant and charismatic advocate for modern and contemporary composers. By the way, the music you're currently hearing is Sarah playing Prelude 3 by composer Ruth Crawford, about whom you'll hear Sarah talk during the interview. One of Sarah's newest and most ambitious projects is The Future is Female, a ritual installation and communal feminist immersive listening experience featuring more than 70 compositions by women around the globe, ranging from the 18th century to present day. The experience also includes new works, many commissioned by Cahill herself. Sarah performs an evening-length recital version of the event, but when the venue is right, she also performs a marathon-length version that can last from four to seven hours, with audiences encouraged to come and go as they please. She was due to perform the marathon version at the Barbican when the COVID-19 pandemic hit. In the 2021-22 season, though, many venues, including the Barbican, will have the great fortune of being able to experience the future as female. Sarah spoke to us from her home in Berkeley, California. I asked her what effect the upheavals of last year had on her goal of ensuring that women composers are recognized and included in the classical canon. I feel probably closer to that goal because there's been a lot of time for reflection, a lot of practicing. I've, I've just been sort of burrowing in with a lot of music and learning music by a lot more interesting composers who were women from the past and women of color and enlarging my repertoire in a way that is different than when there's a particular goal, like, oh, I have this concert, I have this concert, I have this deadline, I have to get ready for this. So it's mostly been about just living with music, which is wonderful. I mean, to just have time to get to know all the piano works by the Czech composer Vítislava Kaprilova, or music has definitely kept me sane during this time. I mean, just studying music. 
One of your projects, Sarah, you know, is the future is female. I'm curious um, for you, where do you see the intersection between art and things like social justice, politics, advocacy work? As I've gotten older, I've thought much more about that intersection between music and social justice and the fact that what we do really needs to reflect the world we live in and not just be the sort of living in a vacuum that a lot of classical pianists have. And I was that way for a long time. I mean, just, you know, you grew up with a classical canon and it's just sort of existing in a vacuum and very different from the outside world. And over the years, I've realized more and more how important it is to include works by composers of color. And also, I mean, yes, works by women. It's just, uh, it's just really perplexing that so many pianists play programs year after year after year without one single work by a woman composer. And these are, you know, even if your repertoire is in the 19th century or the 18th century, there are still so many fabulous works by women. And it just takes doing a little research. And there's so much schlock that's played by, you know, <laughs> it's like sort of second and third rate works by, I don't know, Sanson and Raspighi. And I mean, nothing against those composers, but it's like, we've heard so much of them. And you wonder, like, why don't they just try? Is it, are people so biased that they don't even look at these incredible works by women of the past and women of the present? And what compelled you then to become more of an advocate for women? You mentioned you were one of the pianists living in a vacuum. So what opened your eyes? Uh, it opened my eyes to start working with women composers. So in 2001, I was very immersed in um, the composer Ruth Crawford or Ruth Crawford Seeger, probably best known in general as the stepmother to Pete Seeger and Mike Seeger and Peggy Seeger. But just a a fascinating composer. And when she was in her mid twenties, she wrote piano preludes and I started playing those. And then I did this commissioning project to honor her hundredth birthday. And this was 2001. So I commissioned Pauline Oliveras and Danea Lockwood and Julia Wolf and many other composers to write works in her honor. And I think that got me more on the path to, in the way that when you focus on a particular body of music, you realize how how rich it is and how satisfying and how inspiring it is to play that work. And these were brand new pieces that they wrote for my project. But then I started working more with Pauline Oliveras and playing some of her earlier work. And uh, it just, yeah, the it really opened up this world to me. But it was, you know, it was really a case of it's just it's just there. You just need to see it. And I think that's so true of of all of us. It's just there. We just need to be aware of it and, you know, and dig a little deeper and not just go with what we're taught, because I grew up like everybody with the classical canon. And it was all, you know, the composers we love. It was Mozart and Schubert and Bach. I loved playing Bach when I was little, you know, eight and nine and 10 years old. I just, that was, that was it. It was just like playing Bach. 
but I was never aware of women composers except for these composers you sort of feel sorry for. So you feel sorry for Clara Schumann because she, you know, oh, what a sad life to have 10 children and a, a husband with severe mental illness, you know, attempting suicide. And her life is so sad. And yes, she composed, but we don't really have to listen to those pieces because we know that they're not going to be up to the standards of Robert Schumann, her husband, or something like that. Or, you know what I mean, that in having pity on these composers, we diminish them. It's all about the music. I mean, once you listen to the music itself, you realize how extraordinary they are. You don't need anything else except the music to convince you. What impact did it have on your career, the career you planned when you really decided to focus and honor a more diverse composership? I think it was only good because I think when you believe in something, that comes through in the way that when something is just performative, the audience knows it and presenters know it, and it's a very different feeling. But when you believe in the music you're playing, then that persuades others. And uh, so I think it was, it was all good. I mean, I've been doing this project. I love doing it as a marathon and did that at Chapel Hill a couple years ago. And I'm going to play at the Barbican in London in March. And that will be an all day concert. And can you describe it? Yeah. So it's just playing, you know, five hours or seven hours of music by women around the globe and through the centuries. And there are some people who sit for the entire time. I've had some incredible experiences doing this project, for instance, at the North Dakota Museum of Art, which is in Grand Forks, North Dakota. Beautiful, beautiful contemporary art museum and a really inspiring place to play. And this was right after Heidi Heitkamp, the senator from North Dakota, voted against the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation, which was a courageous thing for her to do. It immediately became clear that she was going to be voted out in North Dakota, and the horrible Republican guy was going to come in as her replacement. And so to, this was right after that happened, so to play five hours of these basically silenced voices, I mean, a lot of this music had either never been played before or had only had one performance or one recording. And so there were women who sat there for the entire time. And, you know, I couldn't help but think of the silenced voice of Christine Blasey Ford on the stand and these, all these, all these women who were telling their stories. Finally, it was a very, very moving experience. So there have been times like that. I mean, every time it's deeply meaningful to do this sort of marathon performance. Are you teaching differently today than you did, let's say, well, before the pandemic in the last year, or let's say, are you teaching differently today than you did 10 years ago? Or what what lessons are you imparting to your students that you didn't before? Yeah, it's definitely different because, you know, I've learned a lot. And I'm willing to say that when I first started teaching this class at the San Francisco Conservatory, 
on 20th century keyboard literature. The class was, you know, like Charles Ives sonatas and, you know, John Cage, Karlheinz Stockhausen, Pierre Boulez, Gyrgy Ligeti, Frederick Shevsky. And so it's so easy to create a class just thinking about, okay, what are the basic trends in 20th century music? And what do I need to cover? I need to cover improvisation and uh, aleatoric processes. And, you know, and then you come up with a class that is all white men. And that's the thing. And for a long time, I think a lot of us just didn't even notice because that's what's in all the history books. I mean, I have I can't tell you how many books I have downstairs on 20th century music. There isn't a single woman or a single composer of color in there because that's the way we were taught. That's the way we sort of carry on teaching others. You know, you carry that tradition forward, both as a teacher of music history, music literature, and also teachers of private lessons. You know, you teach the students what you yourself were taught. And so what I have done now is completely rewrite the syllabus and, you know, Gladsina Bacevich and Kaya Saryaho and Julius Eastman and even Thelonious Monk, you know, just so many people who are so, so important to teach the next generation and the generation after that. I mean, again, it's right, right there for us to see. I think, again, focusing on the music and not saying, as conservatories and music schools and colleges are saying, not saying, we need to open things up to include people of color and include women, and not necessarily make that statement come first, but more to say, listen to this sonata by George Walker. Isn't it great? You know, or maybe instead of playing Francois Couperin for the millionth time, why don't you look at this keyboard suite by Elizabeth Jacquet Laguerre, who is, you know, equally great, if not greater, but rarely played and almost never studied in conservatories or music schools. Like, just make it come from the music because students are not going to want to be force fed anything. None of us like to be force-fed or forced to play music that we don't want to play. But what I find is if you introduce the music itself and start from there, then it's much more successful. Again, in the conservatories and music schools that I've been taught in or had residencies in around the country, there's still a pretty conservative stronghold and there's still the sense that there's nothing greater than the Beethoven sonatas. So you need to work on the Beethoven sonatas before you can do anything else. It is so valuable to these students to realize it's not about giving up the Beethoven sonatas. You don't have to cancel Beethoven or cancel Mozart. It's about adding to the literature and taking initiative and thinking beyond you know, your last year of conservatory, what's going to happen after that? Like, 
are you really going to be a touring classical pianist and play the Beethoven sonatas on the major concert stages for the rest of your life? Is that what you're going to do? Or can you follow a different path? Is there something else available to you that you can, you know, think outside the the conservatory box? Can you talk a little about how you decided to become a commissioner of new work and how you put that idea into action and lessons you learned along the way? Yeah. So when I was 17, I was given a piece of music as a gift by John Adams, and it was called China Gates. And that, yeah. It, it's quite a it gift. Is, <laughs> it is quite a gift. Yes. Seriously. Yes. It was, I think, a Christmas present. And um, I know sometimes I think, wow, if I had commissioned that piece, it would be like $20,000 or something. <laughs> But anyway, so that aroused my curiosity in the sense that, you know, I was working on Schubert and Chopin and so on. And then there's this piece of music that has these kind of zigzagging lines. I don't know how to describe it, except that it's, um, I wish I could rush down to the piano and play it for you now, but it was uh, a minimalist piece of music. So that was, minimalism was was sort of new at that point and I had no idea what to do with it. And I started working on it and thinking about it and thinking, how do I make sense of this piece? And I didn't know at that point music by Terry Riley or Philip Glass or any of those composers. So then I kept playing classical music, but got interested in early 20th century composers like Henry Cowell, who is my hero um, from here in California and did a big project for his 100th birthday here at Berkeley at um, Cal Performances and commissioned pieces in his honor. And I thought, you know, okay, let's have pieces by Henry Cowell that he wrote in, you know, 1915 or 1920, and then composers who have been influenced by him, like John Cage, who was his friend, Lou Harrison was his friend, who's his students, but then go further and think, well, who nowadays is really in touch with that spirit of Henry Cowell? So that was my, the first time I commissioned Terry Riley. And then a friend of mine was working with Meredith Monk. And so she wrote a piece that was 40 minutes long for this friend of mine, the amazing pianist Nareet Tillis. And I commissioned a piece from Blue Jean Tyranny. And that became very sort of addictive to say to a composer, I want you to write a new piece and I'll come up with money. How much money do you need? And then get this brand new piece of music, which is so surprising and astonishing and brand new. And then my mission is to bring that piece to life. And, you know, that's just the greatest thing in the whole world. I love the idea of performing artists commissioning work. I'm I'm amazed it doesn't happen more often that a dancer wouldn't commission or choreographer that or an actor commission a play, uh, that it's just left to institutions. So I'm wondering what what advice would you have for an artist who is kind of thinking of commissioning a piece? What are the difficulties in terms of money, contracting? Is it 
harder or easier than it sounds? Yeah, it's <laughs> both harder and easier. So I would say you have to take risks. And sometimes you get a really terrible piece that you never want to play. <laughs> like, you know, sometimes, I mean, you won't always get what you want. But, and, but then a lot of times you'll get something that takes a while to get to know. So right now I have this piece by Frederick Shevsky, who's one of the, you know, our greatest composers, one of our greatest living composers. And he wrote a piece which I, I got the score and it's, he always writes in manuscript and it's hard to read. And then you get it and it's like, Hmm, I don't know about this, but then you live with it for a while. And I just performed the first movement in an outdoor concert recently. And people really responded like, wow, I want to hear the whole thing. So it's sometimes you need to let it sink in. In terms of money, I often encourage students at the conservatory to work with student composers, young composers, because you never know what will happen to these composers. Like when John Adams gave me that piece, he was a he was a young composer just on the verge of starting his career. But, you know, you never know what will happen in the future. When I work with young composers, what I find is that they will say something like, oh, well, I'll, you know, and they, they don't want to talk about a fee. So they'll say something like, well, whatever, you know, just a couple hundred dollars or something, or I don't, I don't care. And I say to them, like, okay, you have to ask for at least a few thousand dollars. Like your time is worth something. And if you don't value your own work now, then it'll be hard to do it later. And you have to have that money conversation up front. And yes, it's sort of awkward, but you have to do it. What I find about, um, I mean, I've used some of my own money, like I've done commissioning projects where I say, okay, if it's $5,000, then I'll give you, when I make $1,000 in my next project somehow, I'll send $1,000 to you. And then, you know, I do it in installments over time. But also I find that maybe not all of us, but many of us know people who have money, who are willing to help, who might have family foundations or some way to help, and we only need to ask them. So I've had experiences like that where even people I haven't met before, I ask them and they say yes. You just need to be enterprising and sort of adventurous and be willing to jump in there. I mean, money is always an awkward subject, but <laughs> we just have to do it. But then also, yes, when, I mean, it all has to be in writing and, you know, when will you get the piece? How long will it be? Is it about a particular subject? And so on. I recently commissioned a piece from a wonderful composer in Chicago, Regina Harris Beachi, and she wrote a piece. She does a haiku project for sort of inner city kids in Chicago and getting them to write haiku and read haiku. And she did this project about Gwendolyn Brooks and Richard Wright and herself. And it was so beautiful. So there are things like that that are just so delightful. Curious what uh, 
current or upcoming projects that you're most excited about coming up for you? Well, let's see. Tomorrow I'm recording a piece with the San Francisco Girls Chorus and this wonderful local composer, Teresa Wong. We're doing that over Jack Trip, which I guess has low latency, so we can all record together. Teresa Wong used texts that the teenage singers of the San Francisco Girls Chorus wrote about their experience during the pandemic. And it's very moving and very beautiful. And, you know, I think we often underestimate teenagers and ah, their experience is so deep and surprising and um, just really extraordinary. I love this idea of if you're an artist and the interesting work is not coming to you, then you should just create it or have it created for you. Right. right? I love the idea of artists who commission other artists and of performers, not merely performing, but also like she's doing with the future. It's female curating an entire experience for their audience. It's kind yeah. of amazing. Yeah, Pierre Carlo, it, it reminded me actually of a, an interview I once conducted with Brett Dubner, who's a renowned violist. He really is innovative in the way he uses social media and builds his career in his relationships with other artists and especially composers. I think he is, uh, when at the time I had interviewed him, had had recorded more original works on the viola for composers than anyone else in the world. And so it's taking mm. the kind of the bull by the horns and saying, you know, I can create the career that I want um, rather than having to rely on the larger system to provide it for me, um, which is one of the things that I really see that Sarah did. You know, she's making her making up her own systems. She's setting her own goals. She even has kind of her own measures of what success looks like. Um, right. And it, it's a different way to play the game. Yeah. And the idea that if you're as truly invested in the material that you're playing as she is, if you have that special connection to it, your your playing is your the audience immediately feels that. Yeah. Right. It makes a difference as opposed to, and this is of course not to knock the amazing pianists who do play the canon that we all know, but there's something special about seeing a performer performing something with a clear mission. Well, her students at the conservatory, the San Francisco Conservatory, are certainly lucky to have her as a teacher and guide. Agreed. Uh, we should all be sure to keep an eye out for The Future is Female. It may be coming at a venue near you. She also sometimes performs it in museums and galleries, especially the marathon-length version. If you'd like to learn more about Sarah, please visit uncsa.edu artrestart. And many thanks to Sarah for letting us use her recording of the Ruth Crawford prelude in this episode. If you are a fan of an artist in your community who's reinventing their field, please let us know. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at PC Talenti. Our theme music is by Shanghai Restoration Project. I'm Rob Kramer. And I'm Pierre Carlo Talenti. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.